Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Rabbi Sandra Lawson, Associate Chaplain of Jewish Life at Elon University, speaking on the topic of queerness and social equity. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, You know, if you could just maybe introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and um, talk a little bit about the work that you do. So I am the uh, campus rabbi, associate chaplain at Elon University, North Carolina. Um, I'm also one of the few black uh, female black rabbis in the United States, and I'm also queer. Thank you. So maybe to get us started, um, could you define the terms queerness and social equity a bit, just mm-hmm. to give us a little framework? So um, I view queer, queerness um, as an acad- and largely started out as an academic term. And today I see queerness as sort of a uh, blanket or blanket way of of including the L, all the alphabet letters of LGBTQ, um, and for me personally, queerness. I prefer the term queer because, um, for me, um, like the, the the word lesbian says a lot about who I partner with, um, and the term queer sort of expands that a little bit. So I, I feel like it frees me up to. Um, if I wanted to partner with somebody who's trans or somebody who's non-gender binary. Um, but I'm happily married to someone who, did, who identifies as a woman. Um, and uh, I know it's kind of funny. Her sister was asking me, like, why does Sandra, or asking my wife, why does Sandra use the term queer? <laughs> and so I find that it actually fits, fits me better. Um, and what about um, social equity? Right. So um, how I view the term social equity is, and this is going to sound kind of clumsy, um, but we live in a society and a culture that has not always been equitable to all the people who live in this culture. Um, and more people have what I would often call like social capital, um, which you could easily, I guess, call social equity. But just the opportunities for everyone to have the same opportunities um, and or to not have the same opportunities um, equally or equitably. I discovered along the, my research journey for our session today, mm-hmm. um, I came across an article in the European Journal of American Studies titled The Missing Colors of the Rainbow, mm-hmm. Black Queer Resistance. And in that, Elena Kiesling states, the socio-political movements of blacks and queers remain severed and the rift between both communities grows with every new articulation of gay equals black analogies, mm-hmm. homophobic utterances of leading black community institutions, the silence on racial equity from leading LGBTQ organizations, or the calls for safety within gay neighborhoods that target people of color and economically deprived populations. How might you respond to that? There's a lot in there. <laughs> there is a lot in there. And I remember it was a really, it's a really good question. And when I looked at it um, beforehand, I have, a, I have a lot of opinions <laughs> about it. Um, and, and along the same lines of whoever that person is that <laughs> you just read. But I will say that. So, like, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, I feel like the, um, 
any group that gets marginalized in the United States, um, instead of like looking at their own internal marginalization, it's very easy for those groups to often look at the struggles with black people. And the best way that I can sort of explain this um, to you is by an example. Before I went to rabbinical school, I was working with a group of uh, LGBTQ and al allies to fight an amendment in Atlanta, Georgia, that targeted queer people. And this was like way before marriage was a thing, gay marriage was a thing. <laughs> um, we've come so far in such a short period of time. But I remember when I was working with the, uh, with the lawyer from the ACLU, a very, you know, smart, um, with the type of lawyer who also happened to be white, a white female. And she asked me, she's like, you know, why doesn't the black community understand that this is a civil rights issue when we're, it was about um, uh, trying to keep gay people from getting married? So she was asked, why doesn't the black community understand this is a civil rights issue? I said, they do understand it's a civil rights issue. But you can't send a white man in a Mercedes in a black neighborhood um, and then go to a woman's house who happens to be white, black, excuse me, happens to be black, struggled or lived in segregation in the 60s, and then have that white dude explain to that black woman or man that this is a, so, a civil rights issue. That doesn't work. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so there's that. I mean, you know, I think, um, at least in, in, in my uh, memories of being an activist on, on, for a while, and I haven't been an activist for a while, largely because of rabbinical school, and I do sometimes feel out of touch. Um, Proposition 8, for example. Um, Proposition 8 in California, which was another law that targeted gay and, and, les gay and lesbian people, um, and uh, black people became the scapegoat when the, when the, pro when the proposition failed to protect gay people. I can't remember if it was which way that it went. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just inaccurate. And I, I do feel like when you blame a, a voting block, um, that's out of desperation. Um, but they assumed that, that um, you know, the large numbers of people would be, or particular groups of people would be on their side. And I think actually the Mormon constituents actually ruined that for them. But black people were the target and black people were seen as, as um, anti-gay and that's actually just not true and so it's just a lack of understanding and also the gay community the gay political community and when I say that I'm thinking about like HRC the human rights campaign for the longest time most of their literature showed showed you know largely white men um and not a lot of people of color and I don't think they've actually changed and um, and talking about civil rights, but never really using people of color um, to, to as a, or at least showing images of people of color. I mean, I, I saw. Um, I told you I have a lot of opinions about this. I saw an <laughs> ads kid AIDS back. In the, I saw an AIDS campaign ad in Harlem, early time of gentrification, but still predominantly black and brown neighborhood, and and AIDS. Um, ad, you know, so for prevent prevention that featured two white men. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, how out of touch are people? Um, and so, um, you know, and, and I've heard people say that people say that, um, you know, black and brown people are more, more homophobic than white people. And sadly, all the people that I know that have ever been kicked out of their house for being gay all happen to be white. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I it just, it's, it's, um, I just think that that it's just easier for um, p 
people who are struggling to look at at how the black community has overcome or how the black community has dealt with things. But instead of like sort of creating their own um, their their own issues and their own struggle, they tend to try to attach themselves to the to what's happened in the black community. And they think that's cool, but it doesn't. It's not good. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, in recent years, the concept of intersectionality has acquired a more consistent seat at the table, um, you know, within discussions about inclusion, equity. Mm-hmm. Like, how would you describe the intersections of queerness, race, and gender for women and girls of color, particularly within institutional structures? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the best way for me, I guess, is I tend to use my own examples to explain things. So, um, so like in my my early 30s, I converted to Judaism and I had um, queer communities that I was a part of and I had Jewish communities that I was part of and I had gay communities that I was a part of. And I never really mixed all of those together. And I don't, I don't looking back, I'm not sure if I was really comfortable being my whole self in all of those, mm-hmm. um, groups. And it wasn't until I felt that the, um, gay community was being targeted, um, that I've realized that it was really important for me to like be my whole self in all these spaces. So when I was in black spaces, um, I could, you know, or, or religious space, like black religious spaces and, and, and talking about social issues, you know, I could also bring in my religious tradition in a larger, larger Christian context. Um, and the, the, um, climate in Atlanta at that time was very like self-segregating and I'm not really talking about class because there's class segregation too but like you know there's black Christians there's white Christians there's gay white people there's gay brown people and you know the Jews are off then just by themselves (laughs) um and I was in a community that um I was in a Jewish community that was in the city of Atlanta. Most of the synagogues were in the suburbs. And our synagogue was committed to social justice issues, which often meant that we were the only representative, only Jewish representative present at, you know, whatever the social issue was. And at the time, that was, like, gay stuff. Um, But also our rabbi was also, like, I think he was the only white member of a organization called the hundred black clergy or something. <laughs> he was a, a white Jewish dude. <laughs> um, and, um, cause you know, being a synagogue in the city, I think he felt there was a lot of responsibility, you know, being in the community and, um, you know, he was building a coalition of allies or building support. And, and that work that he did actually paid off because when um, the gay community was, he's a, he's a gay man too, he's a gay man too. And the, I think because he showed up for issues, same as Joshua Lesser, when he showed up for issues um, f- that weren't necessarily his concern, when he asked them to show up for stuff, they did. And mm-hmm. so that's the sort of sh- shows the importance of building allies. And now I've actually forgotten your original <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, intersectionality, yeah. Um, and so um, this was before people were even using the term intersectionality. Yeah. And it's so weird when you use terms, uh, you know, like I remember, like I, I've done like organizing work and now we call, you know, 
when you meet one-on-one with someone, like you're doing a one-on-one. And I remember I said, what is a one-on-one? Well, you know, you meet somebody for coffee. And you're, I was like, that, you, that's a name? There's a name for that name? <laughs> <laughs> it's organizing strategy. I'm like, it's a new work. I was like, no, it's not new. You just named it. <laughs> you just gave it a name. <laughs> so, in our, you know, intersectionality. And I talked to a student recently who, um, he's not Jewish, um, and he's a person of color. And he, wants to, he wanted to talk to me as a chaplain. And he, um, um, and he wanted to talk to me because he sort of, he's coming into his own. He's, you know, 18, I'm guessing. And, um, you know, realizing that his sexual orientation is probably not heterosexual. And um, he's also very religious and um, wanted to talk to me, you know, because he's discovering his own sort of intersectionality. He wants to be completely himself and not feel, like, mm-hmm. self-segregating and... Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I look at it. I love that intersectionality is getting an amplified voice Mm -hmm. because it is so important. Um, I also think that it's become a bit of a buzzword. Yeah. You know, for me, honoring the value of intersectionality while not buying into the generic brand that mm-hmm. I feel like it's also receiving is tough. Yeah. Um, like, ha- have you experienced any of that, not conflict of interest, that's a really bad way mm-hmm. to put it, but that um, tension? Just that, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I th- it's just that it's kind of like, having when people ask me to, to explain how it feels to be black and, and even though intersectionality has a name it's just me living living my life is now a sociological term that describes people who don't just have one identity but it or or at least identities related to race um and so i don't necessarily i don't i don't think i feel that that struggle but i also think because i've i sort of came along at a time before people were using these terms and I'm sort of playing catching, I'm catching up to what these words mean, mm-hmm. but they, they don't mean anything new. They're just different names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The attention that intersectionality is getting is important. Um, you know, and I think that it's interesting mm-hmm. that students are now kind of taking on that language mm-hmm. and even though, you know, I'm not a big person for labels, <laughs> but I think that it gives them that, you know, a name to kind of bring light to the fact of how we're all yes. just kind of, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. That wasn't really a question. But, <laughs> but I also, like, I when you know, it's easy, and I know you're not saying this, but I've I've had people say to me, "Well, I don't I don't like labels, or um, why can't we all just be one or something?" And I, I said, you know, we live in a society and a culture that, you know, that the assumption is if you don't define yourself, then the, the norm, what's normal is white, what's normal is male, and by reminding people that not everyone in the society is white, and not everybody in this society um, is straight or whatever. Um, the labels become incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, there's, you don't need to necessarily say something. Like I remember, um, 
you know, like you don't necessarily need to define somebody a, as a person of color if there's just no need to do that. Um, and uh, one of the things I've often challenged people to do is to try to spend the day and not use any racial markers for people and see how that works for some people. <laughs> and but my friends who've mm-hmm. taken me up on the challenge have said that it was hard. My white friends, anyway. Mm-hmm. I guess what I mean for me is that maybe I, a better way to frame that is I don't like to be labeled as fill-in-the-blank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears a little bit on and looking at education. Yeah. Um, knowing that achieving equal access to education is an ongoing process for women and girls in general. Right. How might the added identity of queer impact academic achievement for black and brown girls? Yeah, I think that if um, if you are someone growing up and can, can see that, you know, if you're, so if you're a young queer woman, or even if you don't even know that you're queer, but you know that there's something off or different, um, and this would apply to anything that could be race or, you know, anything that, that makes you not fit in. You're not in an environment that is affirming and supportive. So back to the queer example, if you're, if you're a young kid who is starting to discover this, their sexual orientation, they're discovering that their sexual orientation is not straight. Um, and you don't, if, you don't, if, that's, if that kid does not have the support um, that they need, um, they will struggle because you know, all young children in our world need to be affirmed. They need to be told that they are special and loved and unique. And if they don't get those messages or don't feel like they can talk about whatever they're struggling with, then they're not going to succeed in school. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that schools can create safer spaces mm-hmm. to, um, to offer <laughs> the space itself for, um, you know, a lot of different types of identities? Yeah, so um, I'm kind of excited that a lot of schools now have, and I haven't been in grade school or high school in a long time, but now have, I guess, safe zones or call themselves LGBTQ-friendly. And there are organizations, um, the only one I can think of right now, because I worked for them for a while, is an anti-defamation league that offers free training to schools um, to help create uh, safe spaces for kids of all identities. Um, And also, not only that, but teaches students how to be allies, you know, or how to deflect, um, you know, so they don't, you know, it may be hard for the kid to, like, tell another kid to stop bullying someone because they don't want to get picked on, but they teach, they give them strategies to defuse the situation, you know, or to interrupt the situation so that they can then maybe report a leader. Um. Yeah. Um, I know at Elon, Mm -hmm. when I had first come on, I went through the ADL training. Mm -hmm. Um, That was kind of the first iteration of, diversity and equity work Mm -hmm. that was as a program for the university. That's my understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was interesting because so much of what you just spoke Mm -hmm. of is, you know, how to disrupt like Mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, really important to help give folks the voice to, you know, like it shouldn't, 
always come down to the person who is feeling harm or uncomfortable, you know, and to have people ready and yeah. able to say not okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and only, and then if they can't say it, that's not okay. Cause there's lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, back to just disrupting, like, you know, interrupting, like, you know, however that, you know, like just maybe like, Hey, let's go, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or, um, the millions of other things, which I think is really good for kids in school, mm-hmm. um, or in grade school and high school, because, you know, there's so much, um, students don't often step in because they don't, I would assume don't want to be bullied. Um, or they, um, you know, they don't want to be picked on. They don't want to be the subject of violence themselves or they don't want to stand out. But like teaching a kid how to interrupt something um, is, a, is a good strategy uh, to, to help. Yeah. Cool. One thing that I'm curious about to see what your thoughts are, are, you know, there's a lot of implicit messaging in our society, you know, sending to women and girls of color in regards to their access to leadership roles. Mm-hmm. What, like, what are some of the ways that the, that you have seen or experienced those implicit messages manifest? You know, I, I'm sorry. I just keep, you know, this is a, probably the best thing to say, but, you know, I was watching um, the news conference um, after the election. And I watched our, I watched um, the current president, I often just call him 45, uh, <laughs> um, basically shut down um, a reporter uh, who's black, April, April, April Ryan, mm-hmm. um, who's a, you know, been a reporter for a long time, but like, you know, and then I, th- or maybe I can't remember if it was that or for you tacked her on Twitter or something, but um, when I see people, when I see people in leadership positions, especially men, and then they, they, they shut, obviously shut down someone who's black, um, someone who's a woman. And I don't see them do the same thing in the same way. Um, cause he called her names <laughs> with men. Um, you know, that just, that is what I'm thinking about when I, when you ask me your question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so, and we also, we live in a society that, um, tells, you know, black and brown girls that, you know, th- th- these are their standards. So like, I remember a few, a year or so ago, I, I saw an article about a woman, a girl being kicked out of school because her hair was braided or she had mm-hmm. locks, um, because that school was like, this doesn't fit our standard, um, but the, the standard in their school was, was whiteness, not like, you know, mm-hmm. multicultural, even the military. Um, and I'm a veteran, um, screwed up during the Obama administration. They had policies that were clearly targeted towards black women. They've got rid of those policies because of backlash, but it just has to do with what is seen as normal in our society. What's seen as normal is, is often white and, um, and so th- th- those are, that's how I think, that's what I'm thinking about when I think about how black and brown girls get shut down. Yeah. So how do we change that narrative to flip the script <laughs> a bit and empower, you know, our 
young girls and women and, you know, brown and Mm -hmm. black children to really look at ways to embody leadership roles. I think we are, you know, we're, we're living in some crazy times for a lot of reasons, but we're also living in some really amazing times because, you know, um, I don't believe, I, I'm an advocate, of, I, I use Twitter, but I, we, we now have social movements that are, have hashtags, so like hashtag Me Too or hashtag Black Lives Matter. And both of those movements, when they started, received a lot of Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Um, and people are like, no, they don't. I mean, they do. And why do I have to say all, you know, I'm, I'm actually talking about a particular group of people who are suffering particular trauma that not all people are suffering. And yes, it goes without saying that all lives matter, you know, but when we say all lives matter, that doesn't necessarily mean black lives because our society is clearly saying that. And, you know, me too, for example, also, um, and the you know the backlash that you know when women started complaining about sexual violence, sexual assault, or rape, um, you know, and when that hashtag showed up and all the women sharing their stories, that was really empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, and this past election, which um, you know, I just want to cry. All these women who have run, you know, um, I'm, uh, you know, my 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 home of choice is Georgia. And the, uh, I can't remember her name. She was, I think she was running for the Senate seat. She used to be Secretary of State. Her name is Handel. Um, was defeated by, she was defeated by a black woman who lost her son to gun violence and ran on a, and a, and a, on a pro-gun control platform in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and her son was, and I hope this is right, her son was killed by a man who thought his music was too loud. Hmm. You know, that's just crazy. And then I, and because of this, like, so I love my dad and, and I, you know, I've got a, we all have interesting relationship with our parents and our, my relationship with my dad as an adult is very different than my relationship with my dad as a, um, as a child. And I, and my dad, you know, I do believe that my dad probably used his power in inappropriate ways with women. You know, but my dad is now 70 and he's re- reflecting on his life. And he, when this all started to happen, he said to me, he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, and he's, an av- he's a veteran advocate. And so he was saying, I'm going to go to the VA and I'm going to talk about me too. And, and I just said, dad, I don't think you're the best person to do that. And he said, why? And I just said, I just, you know, I, um, and I don't know how I phrase it. It was, this was a phone conversation. And then that, from that statement, he said, well, were you ever like, uh, harassed as a, a female when you're in the military. And so my dad had a lot of, had a, a significant amount of power of people, mm-hmm. people in the military. And I do believe, like I said, I believe he abused that power. And, um, and he's, uh, you know, made apologies to me for that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he did. Like, I don't know how far it went, but I do think, I do know he, he abused his power. Um, and I said, yes. And he's like, what? I said, wait, wait, before we go any further, I said, I was never raped. I was never sexually assaulted. I was never anything, none of things, nothing horrible happened to me, but yes, I did suffer from sexual harassment from men. And that was the culture then. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you just don't ever want to believe it happens to your, your daughter. And I said, yeah, that's what happens with most men. I think that, you know, men do things and say things and then they have daughters and they, that makes them think about those things differently. It doesn't necessarily mean that they change their behavior, mm-hmm. but it makes them think about things differently. I think the more voices that 
empower that show up to empower women or empower whatever the struggles that we're facing in our society. That's how things will change. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm so excited that there are, you know, more uh, women of color now that will be in Congress. Mm-hmm. More women of you know more women and more women of color um, that will now have you know legislative power. More young people. Um, you know, I think there's a Native American woman <laughs> who's queer, who's now in office. Um, and this is exciting. I mean, you know, I'm also not as hopeful that when they get there, they'll be able to do anything. But just the presence is going to change the conversation mm-hmm. of, of, of how things are. Um, and when you just have one woman, um, it's hard. But when you have a group of women saying things, you know, that, that changes I, I feel like I need to do the plug for an Elon alum. Um, her mom was just elected as Chicago's, um, or Il- Illinois, Illinois, yes, mm-hmm. Illinois's first African American female lieutenant governor. Wow! Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and I yeah. remember when she worked with me at Elon, mm-hmm. the, the student. Up mom yeah but um (laughs) and just to hear her talk about the ways in which her mom approached things head on (laughs) you know very no nonsense (laughs) and for me you know it was I was witnessing this forward movement where she and her two sisters were seeing this very empowered Mm -hmm. black female just take it by storm. And that, like, I've seen how that has transformed those three daughters. Mm. Yeah. You know, because they're like, that's mom. Yeah. You know, like, and that's, I was so joyful when I saw the outcome of that race. That was amazing. The last thing asking everybody to see kind of their two cents worth on this. Um, the theme of this podcast, as I mentioned, is learning, lifting, leading social equity for and by black and brown girls and women, which is a line from the conference that was held, women's conference that was held at Shaw University mm. this past October um, in Raleigh. And so I'm wondering if you, you know, final words, if you could maybe make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equity? That's a little question, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Uh, yeah. Um, I just, I mean, I, I, and maybe it's the rabbi in me, you know, or maybe it's just my, my personality. I, you know, I just want us to create a society where Black and brown girls, um, and in parentheses, all girls, of course, um, are affirmed and loved and told that they matter. Um, and instead of, uh, I've been reading Brene Brown, so. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm trying not to sound like her. <laughs> I, I've gone down the Brene Brown rabbit hole. It, it, it's a very long hole. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I could tell I'm starting to. Okay. Um, so, 
since I've, I've been in school for so long, I'm now reading stuff that I want to read. And it's yes. so exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I just, you know, I, I don't, I, I sadly feel like I, I run into a lot of young people who don't get that message. Or I've also run into people where I may be the first person that sort of affirmed that they are wonderful people. Well, I certainly thank you for mm-hmm. contributing to this good work. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women, with our guest, Rabbi Sandra Lawson, Associate Chaplain of Jewish Life at Elon University. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex Branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.